From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. Ralph Blumenthal is a respected name in the world of journalism. He's a distinguished lecturer at Baruch College of the City University of New York and summer journalism instructor at Felix Exeter Academy. He was an award-winning reporter for the New York Times from 1964 to 2009, and over that time, he's written seven books on organized crime and cultural history. He led the Times Metro team that won the Pulitzer Prize for breaking news coverage of the 1993 truck bombing of the World Trade Center. In 2001, he was named a fellow of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation to research the progressive career and penal reforms of Warden Louis E. Laws, the man who made Sing Sing Sing. Ralph Blumenthal has, for over 45 years, led quite an impressive career in journalism from one of the most distinguished and respected publications in the world. So why am I talking about him? Because in 2017, Blumenthal, along with Helene Cooper and Leslie Kane, published an article in the New York Times that would cover a topic once considered so fringe that no self-respecting journalist would touch it. A topic that generally would get you laughed out of the room or called a sci-fi conspiracy theorist. But with that 2017 article everything started to change. The article revealed that the Pentagon, despite denying such programs existed, have in fact been studying the reports of unidentified flying objects. And as it turns out, there are many such reports, reports from highly trained military pilots who have engaged on a regular basis with unknown craft that deny the current laws of physics, craft that can outmaneuver and outpace the best technology we currently have that seem to be hundreds of years beyond any technology that we're even aware of, and that regularly invade our airspace with impunity. So why does the government seem so uninterested in this phenomenon publicly, and yet are clearly studying these things secretly? What are these things? Are they friend or foe? Is it advanced technology from one of our adversaries? Is it some sort of strange glitch in the equipment? But that wouldn't explain the numbers of pilots and other highly credible witnesses who have seen these objects with their own eyes. And also, if it was technology owned and operated by our adversaries, then why haven't they used it to their advantage in the decades it's been known to exist? And if it's not Chinese or Russian technology, and it's not truly ours, then who or what is it? Thanks to articles like the one Ralph Blumenthal contributed to in 2017 and additional articles over the past several years digging even deeper into the issue, there seem to be more questions than answers, specifically as we get closer and closer to understanding just what the Pentagon knows. So welcome to this week's mystery, UFOs, the Government, and John Mack on From the Void.
All right. Welcome to the podcast, Ralph Blumenthal. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to uh, to be with us. John, it's a pleasure. Thank you. So uh, for people that, that don't, aren't familiar with your work, and I, I don't know how they couldn't be at this point since uh, the UFO uh, phenomenon is is huge right now, and uh, in large part due to some of the work that you uh, that you did uh, right around this time last year. So you, you write for the New York Times, and uh, you, you've contributed to uh, multiple pieces on uh, just what's going on up there in the skies. So tell people a little bit about who you are, your background, and how you got interested in this topic. Uh, sure. Um, I was a New York Times reporter for 45 years. Uh, I left in 2009 to uh, teach. Um, I'm a distinguished lecturer at Baruch College at City University of New York, uh, but I also continued contributing to the New York Times and write books, including my latest, The Believer, about John Mack, the Harvard psychiatrist who studied alien abduction. Um, so that's been my career. But obviously, there's stigma surrounding the topic of UFO to the extent where we've changed the name. And, and that was a risky move, I would imagine, pitching that sort of uh, topic to The New York Times, which has, uh, you know, this distinguished background. Uh, were they receptive to this? How did you how did you go about getting that approved? Well, it was uh, not so much a risky move because my whole career was investigative reporting and it took me, you know, along some very strange byways at the New York Times, and this was just another one. Um, I followed the evidence, as John Mack did, uh, you know, when he researched the phenomena of alien abduction, although I want to keep uh, UFOs or UAP apart from, from alien abduction because they're two very separate things, which we can discuss. But anyway, um, when I heard about this good story, that there was a secret unit of the Pentagon involved in tracking UFOs after the government, decades after the government said it was out of the UFO business, which it never was. Um, uh, it was a story, and that's what we do at the New York Times. You know, we cover good stories, and this was a, a, a story about the government and how the government works, and the New York Times has written about UFOs in the past, um, selectively and carefully, but it has. So uh, it was not a risk at all. Yeah, and what what I really appreciated, uh, you know, I always have, have viewed these things as, uh, you know, the, the entire topic in general is this fascinating thing. And, you know, and, and there's obviously a part of me that wants it to be, you know, a, aliens from another planet, you know, who have figured out a way to traverse these large distances in space. I mean, I've always been fascinated with space travel, but the skeptical side of me, you know, the, the, the scientific side of me says, you know, where where's the proof? And what I appreciate about, I think, the work that you've done and that uh, Leslie Kane has done uh, is that you've you've really done your due diligence and you've brought the facts to the table. And the facts are that the government is studying this phenomenon and that they don't know what these craft are. Uh, so. Tell me a little bit about what was the fir- what was the first story? What was the first uh, maybe interview that you had with someone where you're like, "There's something here." Well, um, what happened is Leslie Kane, uh, who's been following this UFO field for a long time, longer than I, um, went down to Washington. She got a good tip, and she participated in a meeting with Lou Elizondo, who was the head of the secret Pentagon unit, which no one at that point had known about. And he uh, revealed that he was leaving. He had just sent in his letter of resignation because he was not getting enough government support. 
and in the course of this, Leslie learned about this unit, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, um, and, and what it was doing in the Pentagon. So she came up and told me, and I took it to the Times, as you said, um, and, uh, and that's and the Times was you know very receptive immediately because it was clearly a good story. Nobody knew about this you know secret arm of the Pentagon that it was uh, looking into UFOs that it had tracked a number of incidents uh, over the years, recent years. Um, so um, you know it was really kind of a no brainer. And uh, when I heard some of the stories later, we we continued to write uh, several stories from standpoint of pilots who reported these encounters, and they were mind-blowing. I mean, there was one pilot, Dave Fravor, who saw this giant white tic-tac thing. He, he eyeballed it. It was captured on um, you know, thermal imaging cameras on his uh, F-18. Uh, it was captured on radar on the ships and the aircraft carrier Nimitz uh, off the California coast. So sure, it blew my mind. <laughs> you know, one of the things we've learned now um, thanks to, uh, you know, the, the, um, the research that the, the Pentagon has done, is that these things are real. I mean, nobody knows what they are, where they come from, who's behind the wheel, you know, why they're here. None, none of those questions, which you don't really have to know uh, to establish that they have a physicality. Uh, but that in itself has been a big breakthrough, because for years, people thought, including, uh, you know, Carl Jung, the great psychiatrist, said... Um, well, these may be archetypes. These may be, you know, mental constructs. Uh, you know, these are mass delusions uh, for, for some psychological reason that people have. But now uh, we know, uh, as much as we know anything, that they, these things are real. Um, we don't know, as I said, well, you know, anything beyond that. But that's already a big breakthrough. Yeah, that, that seems like massive progress compared to where we were even five years ago. Um, and the fact that, as you said, we've got uh, what I deem to be the most credible type of witnesses. We've got trained pilots. I mean, these guys are trained to to know what they're looking at in the sky. And, and these aren't the types of witnesses who are going to mistake, you know, uh, some sort of uh, craft up there for a bird or for, you know, some sort of weather phenomenon. You know, these are these are guys who know the difference. Absolutely and, right. Uh, and are... Yeah, I mean, these are our most highly trained observers. We've spent millions and millions of dollars training these people, men and women, to fly these incredibly sophisticated, you know, billion-dollar technology. And, and then to say, well, they don't know the difference between the planet Venus and, you know, UFO. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting too the the conversations that have resulted out of this. Uh, you know, you've got some some folks who say, "Well, it's got to be it's got to be enemy aircraft." You know, some advanced technology, but it seems to me that that would be leaps and bounds in terms of advancement. I mean, we're we're talking a much uh, larger leap forward in technology than just you know uh, a standard jet to a stealth bomber. We're talking a completely what it appears to be a completely different type of propulsion system. From from your uh, research, I mean, it, it appears as if there's no exhaust. There's no. Um, it's just not a typical type of propulsion that we're seeing. Right. And, and a lot of them uh, appear to be noiseless and uh, are, are traveling at speeds that would essentially turn a human being into mush right, if, exactly. if they were. I mean, piloting. Uh, Lou Elizondo recently said on a program that. One of these things was basically estimated to be traveling at about 43,000 miles an hour. 
um, and they go in and out of visibility. Uh, they plunge from 80,000 feet down to, you know, water level. They operate underwater in some cases. Um, none of this technology is familiar to anyone who understands, you know, where the Russians are, where the Chinese are. And, you know, that gets thrown up a lot that, well, maybe it's enemy technology. But uh, all the people we have interviewed at The New York Times say extremely implausible that uh, any earthly power would have this technology. And it's also been suggested, well, maybe this is secret American technology, you know, that one part of the government doesn't know what the other part is doing. Uh, and that is probably even more unlikely because uh, uh, no nobody would risk uh, this technology in crowded airspace where, you know, F-18s are maneuvering off aircraft carriers. If they, they, they were some close calls near misses and if god forbid um it was our own technology causing a crash i mean that would be a tremendous scandal um quite apart from the fact that this technology is not recognizable to anyone who knows where we are in the technology race yeah oh my gosh yeah i've, I've heard a couple different witnesses aboard some of these uh aircraft carriers you know from radar you know radar technicians and, and the like saying Look, you know, when when we're in a, a, a Navy battle exercise, you know, to have some covert operation uh, occurring next to us, that close to us, would just never happen right. because of the likelihood of potentially accidental friendly fire or some sort of mishap. That that just is not the way we operate. Right. It does not seem possible. Now, of course, you know, it's always impossible to rule out a theoretical possibility. So, you know, skeptics, so-called skeptics, although I wish they would do the kind of homework that uh, you have to do to understand this field. Some of these skeptics just haven't read the material and they don't know what they're talking about. They're just, quote, you know, uh, debunkers. But they have said, well, you know, can, can we prove that it's not American technology? Well, it's very hard to prove a negative. Possibly somewhere in the government, they, you know, uh, you know made this breakthrough uh, extremely unlikely. And there's certainly no proof of that, no indicate, not even evidence for it. So, so in your research, what what has been kind of the approach by the military? It seems like they're kind of hands off. Like they they've obviously uh, we're seeing more and more pilots and uh, military personnel come forward and saying, yes, this is something that we witness on a fairly regular basis. It seems like, but it seems like the 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 at least unspoken instructions for these pilots are to not engage, just kind of observe, but. It almost seems like they're they're almost encouraged not to even report. These no, that's not true. They are like, encouraged what's... now to report. They used to be encouraged oh, okay. not to report, but the Navy has put out explicit instructions now. The Navy, for some reason, has taken the lead more than the Air Force, which uh, you know we don't quite understand. But um, the uh, the guidelines have changed, and now they want, uh, or at least they've encouraged uh, personnel to come forward with these accounts. Uh, to report them. It used to be the opposite that uh, would, you know, result in a quick trip to the psychiatrist. You could lose your, you know, your, your pilot's license, etc. cetera. Uh, but now they are welcoming these reports. Now, the government's position is still not fully transparent. Uh, it's not clear how, uh, you know, uh, diligent they have been in, in looking into this. Lou Elizondo has said some things lately about the failure of the government to take this phenomenon as seriously as it should. Um, and the government certainly has a long history of, of uh, duplicitous behavior. 
Um, I mean, it, it's a long and, and sad history of denying the phenomenon of disinformation along the way, but uh, things seem to have changed somewhat. And, and it also seems to me that there's there's the things that we do publicly uh, and the things that we do, obviously, in secret. And it I, I would personally find it hard to believe that the government hasn't been studying this phenomenon all along, you know, on a on a very secret kind of level versus what they're publicly, you know, acknowledging. And it seems that, you know, in part due to your work uh, and folks like you. They've almost been forced to acknowledge the fact that yes, we do have this program. Uh, you mentioned ATIP, uh, you know, to, to study this, but it, it seems that there's there's more than likely some some sort of uh, study happening long before that, and you know, right, kind of under under you know, covertly. Absolutely. I mean, officially, the government got out of the UFO business with the end of Project Blue Book uh, at the end of 1969, but. Um, uh, we know that there are still, you know, nooks and crannies in the government, deep secret places where this research has continued, and um, it's very, very hard to penetrate. It's all classified, top secret. But uh, you're absolutely right; the government did not abandon its interest. Uh, there's an interesting question that somebody brought up online. Uh, that that uh, I think would be interesting to ask, and maybe I I don't know if, if uh, in your encounters with with some of these folks that you've spoken with, like the pilots, for example, uh, have there have they acknowledged any sort of attempt to uh, communicate with any of the the objects that they're you know flying alongside, or has it just been mostly observations no. from a visual no, no, perspective? Uh, as far as I know, the communications have been from the pilots to uh, their counterparts on the ships. Um, um, I, I don't. I don't know how they would begin to communicate with these objects because there's no, uh, there's no, you know, radio system between them. I mean, again, to go back to the obvious, we don't know uh, whether these things are piloted. Uh, you know, what kind of an intelligence is behind them? Are they drones? Are they just technology? Uh, as I said, they, they they seem to be physically real because they've been caught on radar and they're caught on you know, uh, thermal imaging devices. But beyond that, uh, there's no way of knowing, you know, how to communicate. Now, when I get into my John Mack, uh, you know, research that he was uh, investigating alien encounters, etc., those accounts dealt with telepathy, that these beings, these people who claim to have had encounters with alien beings, uh, all said, uh, really, that the communication was via telepathy that they just heard the words inside their heads because everyone was asking, you mean these beings spoke, you know, perfect English? And the answer was, well, no, they didn't speak perfectly, but I heard the words in my head. So, uh, but there was certainly no suggestion that any telepathy occurred between the pilots that were chasing these objects and, um, you know, and the objects. There was zero communication. Yeah, that's a, that's a good segue into in, into your book. I think so. You've got a new book out, "The Believer: Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack." John Mack is a fascinating character. This this is a guy who was a scientist, and so tell people a little bit about who John Mack was and how did he get involved in in this field? Right. Uh, so John Mack was an esteemed uh, professor of psychiatry at Harvard University. Um, he um, 
had written a, a Pulitzer Prize winning biography of T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. So he was really a pillar of the literary uh, establishment as well as a, uh, uh, a very distinguished member of the Harvard psychiatric faculty. Uh, he had uh, um, done a lot of groundbreaking work to bring mental health care to the community. I uh, very firmly grounded on earth, I say in the book. Um, and um, as a result of his biography of T.E. Lawrence, he got very involved in Middle East politics and the efforts to to find peace between the Israelis and the uh, Palestinians. So he met with Yasser Arafat and he traveled to the Middle East to lecture. And he was also very uh, socially progressive. He protested nuclear weapons and he and his whole family were arrested in Nevada protesting nuclear weapons. So he came from a very... Um, you know, well-grounded, it's kind of a pun almost, uh, you know, background, uh, not terribly superstitious. He grew up in a secular uh, German-Jewish household. His parents were both professors, so he was not, you know, part of the spiritual community in any way. He did uh, experiment with drugs to some extent, but that was really part of his uh, research into different um, psychiatric states. He wanted to try it out for himself. Anyway, uh, through a series of steps I outline in the book, he really deviated from his rather conventional career at Harvard to this interest in, in alien abduction. Um, but it, it was an unlikely um, progression, which is why I, I found it so interesting as a story. Uh, <clears throat> And um, um, and he really was a pioneer. I mean, he was the most important researcher, investigator of this whole phenomenon of people who uh, believe uh, with, with suitable affect uh, that they uh, had had encounters with alien beings. So... But uh, John, uh, John Mack initially, correct me if I'm wrong, he was very skeptical about the phenomenon, right? He, he thought these people were like, ah, I don't know, these people might be crazy uh, or, or, or it might be some sort of attributable, uh, attributable uh, mental condition. Uh, he was not a believer initially. Is that, is that correct? That's absolutely right. I mean, he, uh, he was introduced to the phenomenon through a couple of things. He, uh, he went out to Esalen on the West Coast. And, uh, and and learned about something called holotropic breathing, which was a breathing discipline to a relaxation technique to music um, uh, through which one can enter the different states of consciousness. Um, it's, it's sort of like hypnosis in a way. Um, and he was taken back to his childhood, actually. He uh, felt himself back in the womb. His mother... And this is really an important part of the story. His mother died when he was eight and a half months old of appendicitis. So he always felt that um, his mother was taken from him and he was always searching for something missing in his life, which in the book I, I really show that um, that was a factor in his search for you know, the, something missing in the cosmos. But um, so he, he learned this breathing technique. And uh, he, he was shown a chapter about alien abduction when he was out there on the West Coast, but he didn't make much of it. And then um, a fellow psychiatrist offered him an introduction to Bud Hopkins. And Bud Hopkins was a real pioneer in this field. He was an artist who had studied alien abduction because he got interested in UFOs. 
and he taught himself hypnosis. But he was an artist. He was not a professional like Mac. So when Mac had the chance, was offered the chance to meet with Bud Hopkins, you're absolutely right. His, his initial reaction was, oh, these people are crazy. He's probably crazy, too. I mean, and, it, you know, it is crazy. I mean, it sounds absolutely nuts uh, because it's not part of our everyday reality. I mean, we know that walking around, we don't see alien beings. We don't see people being abducted. We don't see UFOs landing. This is all part of a very uh, special kind of perception. Um, and it, it's a mystery. It's not clear at all where this stuff comes from. So John Mack was like everybody else when he first heard about it. He said, this is nuts. And uh, it was only when he started meeting some of these uh, experiences or abductees, experiences is maybe a little better word because it's non-judgmental, um, that he began through stuff we can talk about to credit their accounts. But um, in the beginning, uh, everyone's reaction is, this is impossible. So were, were there... Were there particular cases, or was it just kind of the uh, overwhelming number of of credible uh, individuals that he spoke with that started to really change his his perspective on? on well, it was things? both. I mean, he first of all he was amazed at the number of people from um, a, a great cross section of backgrounds, not any particular type of person uh, who came forward with these experiences. When I say came forward, they did not seek him out you know, eager to tell their story, to make money or to, you know, for publicity. It was the opposite. They were ashamed, really, of, of the story they had to tell. Um, but uh, when he started interviewing these people, and there were men, women, old, young, white-collar, blue-collar, psychiatrists, cops, you know, uh, every profession you can possibly imagine, uh, and children as young as two years old uh, who would say things like, you know, little man, take me up in the sky. I fly in the sky. And he realized that these kids were not reciting stories of books they had read or movies they had seen. They were, you know, two, three years old. So uh, so first of all, it was these stories that had a basic consistency that really, uh, you know, blew his mind. And then. Um, um, he found that when they told their stories, uh, they told them with such emotional uh, affect, which is the psychiatric term for their 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 mental state, while you know uh, uh, you know reporting these things, it was so convincing. They would cry and weep and curse, um, and uh, so he he decided. Again, based on his expertise as a psychiatrist, these people are not making it up. Um, and as I said, they were very often ashamed. They had a, they met him under you know, with false names and you know through mail drops. I mean, they didn't. They were not looking for attention. And then he found um, uh, some fragmentary evidence uh, backing these stories up. Uh, for example, they were very often affiliated with UFO sightings. Uh, so people would often say they saw a UFO and then they became aware of these beings um, in their bedroom, let's say, at night. But it wasn't always at night. Sometimes it was while they were driving a car. Uh, sometimes it was broad daylight. Um, 
Uh, and sometimes there was evidence of some kind of a landing outside. The branches were broken or the grass was disturbed. Um, some of these people had scars that they could not explain afterwards, including a quadriplegic who couldn't move. <laughs> so he couldn't create his own scars. So, uh, you know, and then probably the most interesting evidence, if you want to call it evidence, um, were the multiple witness accounts um, that uh, in one story that that John Mack uh, was very taken with. Two girls had a sleepover um, and during the night they saw a UFO. They reported later that they'd seen a UFO outside the window. And during the night, one of the mothers came down to check on the girls and the girls were missing. And she called the police and they searched everywhere. They were you know, panic stricken, obviously. And a few hours later, the girls turned up later in their beds. So and then later, you know, when they were interviewed, they recalled consciously or under, you know, relaxation technique, hypnosis that, yeah, they remembered having some kind of a, you know, encounter with alien beings. So here's a case of them being absent from their beds for a while. So putting this all together. John Mack said uh, something in some in some state of reality happened to these people. Now, over the course of his work, because he talked to numerous people uh, throughout the course of his career, um, did he have a sense of was there a common theme amongst these uh, abduction stories? Was there a message, uh, you know, something that these these beings were trying to get across? Like, what was the common common thread? There, there? was a common thread, uh, but what was interesting uh, <clears throat> was that uh, there was a basic consistency to the stories. That these people, you know, became aware of a UFO, then they became became aware of beings. These uh, beings then transported them through closed windows and solid walls to some kind of a ship. Um, and there in the ship, they were subject to uh, some strange um, physical examinations, sometimes reproductive procedures. Uh, eggs were taken from women and sperm from men. And then later they were reabducted to be shown their hybrid, you know, children. I mean, this is this was a, a theme that ran through a number of the stories, but the stories were also different in many little details. So it was not as if these people were reciting some basic, you know, core story that someone had read and they all agreed to tell the same story. The, 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 uh, the differences were striking and very um, bizarre, like you couldn't make up these little individual details. So that was very uh, convincing to John Mack that these people were telling uh, basically a similar general story with uh, different differing individual details. That's fascinating. So by the end of his career, you know, obviously he's he's come full circle in terms of um, you know how you know. The, when he came into it, obviously, as we talked about earlier, he was not necessarily uh, apt to believe that this was a, a real phenomenon. So what what was his uh, his feeling uh, at the end? Well, um, you know, the other thing you mentioned is uh, the messages he felt that these people were being given. And uh, here he differed from Bud Hopkins and uh, David Jacobs, who was a professor, history professor at Temple University, who also um, interviewed and and uh, regressed uh, a lot of um, 
um, you know, uh, experiencers. Uh, John's experience, John Mack's experiences uh, seemed uh, more uh, prone to uh, getting messages about these, the desperate condition of the earth, um, pollution, uh, the danger of nuclear weapons, um, uh, the, the sense that there was a benign intelligence, a loving intelligence in the universe um, that was out there. Whereas uh, Hopkins and Jacobs came away with the, with the impression that the, the people who sought them out, uh, the experiences, uh, were basically just traumatized, that these uh, alien beings were uh, immoral or evil, bent on hybrid reproduction, uh, traumatizing humans for whatever reason, didn't care what humans felt or thought. Um, and also, uh, John Mack started believing that um, this, this was probably not hap happening in everyday reality. I mean, clearly, it wasn't everyday reality. It might not even be our notion of reality at all. It was real to these people, but it was happening perhaps in some dimensional crossover or something. Um, whereas Hopkins and Jacobs kept insisting that this was real. This was as real as anything could possibly be. This was actually happening in, in our reality. So that was another point of difference. Um, in the beginning, John Mack did think it was absolutely real. I mean, it, he always thought it was real in some way, but he drifted away from the idea that it was happening in everyday reality. It was some other uh, dimensional crossover uh, situation, very subtle, um, not easy to grasp. Um, but anyway, that's that, that was his development. And then he went on uh, to, to other aspects of uh, anomalous uh, situations, which, which we can discuss. Yeah, yeah. Talk about that a little bit. I, I think uh, for a lot of people who aren't familiar with John Mack and, and his research, um, it, it's just really interesting stuff. So, yeah, I would love for you to, to, to kind of talk about that stuff. Okay, a bit. so when he discovered uh, or, or stumbled across uh, alien abduction, um, he, he was dumbfounded, as I said, and he first thought that this was happening in absolute reality, that there was nothing ever like this in the history of the world. I mean, this was extraordinary. Uh, there had been one case of this that had come to light, which is Betty and Barney Hill, the New Hampshire couple that in the 60s uh, you know, uh, told a story of encountering alien beings. But uh, John Mack found that this whole thing completely singular. Uh, but as he investigated this, he became uh, more and more convinced that it was part of a whole number of mysteries that um, are somehow linked. Um, uh, for example, uh, uh, crop circles. He went to England to investigate crop circles, which are the patterns in, in grass that seem to come up overnight. And some of them are hoaxes, some of them are man-made, but others seem not to be. And he went there to investigate and he felt the power of these uh, symbols that were in the grass and was very taken with that. Um, uh, he got very interested in other, uh, you could say, supernatural things. Um, um, and he became more and more interested in, in survival of consciousness, life after death. 
um, what happens to to the psyche after death? Do do we do we just die and you know everything stops when the brain stops, or is there a spirit that lives on? Ghosts, for example. So uh, he became more and more interested in this to the point where he was planning a book on a woman, a psychiatrist who had done some of this uh, afterlife research and uh, also research in the, the, dis the power of distant prayer to help people, which is interesting. And when she died of, of brain cancer, a very sad story, um, uh, friends and relatives of hers uh, felt that they had gotten messages from, from her, from, from, from the beyond. And he was, you know, fascinated by this. He was going to do a book on it. And he, and he um, told his friends, uh, maybe I can do better work from the other side. So he was clearly, uh, you know, interested himself into what, what would happen. And so some people asked, well, what did he actually commit suicide to, to test this, this theory? I mean, did he step in front of that car willingly, uh, the car that killed him in London? And I would say the answer is no, not deliberately, but uh, there were things going on in his mind that perhaps made him more open to the idea of, you know, uh, what would happen to him afterwards. And at the very end of the book, um, I talk about cases where people who worked with him uh, said they did see him come back or his spirit and communicated with him. And I'm very careful to put this in a certain context, so I don't want it to you know, make it look like the whole book is a supernatural story. Um, uh, all I do is I say, this is what some people say, and this is this, these are their stories, and I tell the stories. I, I found them, you know, fascinating myself. Of course, there's no proof. Um, but um, anyway, so you could say he, he came full circle. That's so interesting. And, and, the other part of the story, too, I think, is that uh, it, the academic community obviously um, had an interesting reaction, as you can imagine, uh, to his work. So talk about that a little bit. How, how did his peers kind of react to these things that he was studying? Well, you know, the academic world is not known for its magnanimity when it comes to colleagues succeeding. <laughs> That's true. I'll put that in the most, uh, uh, you know, amorphous form. Um, so when he won his Pulitzer Prize for uh, the book on T.E. Lawrence, A Prince uh, of Our Disorder, uh, which was a kind of a psychobiography of Lawrence, and it was a wonderful book, uh, actually, um, that created some, you know, uh, jealousy among colleagues. Uh, you know, not every professor wins a Pulitzer Prize for biography, so that was one thing. Then uh, he wrote two books on his alien abduction research. Uh, the first book um, was called Abduction, uh, Human Encounters with Aliens. So that rubbed some people the wrong way, particularly at Harvard. It was also a bestseller. Um, and he followed up with a second book that was a little more um, muted, but also quite controversial. So uh, the reaction of his colleagues, uh, some supported him, some knew him as a brilliant psychiatrist uh, who very bravely went off in a new direction to, you know, research a, a fascinating phenomenon. Uh, but others, uh, you know, Harvard can be a conventional place, although not all that conventional, I found out, because William James was investigating seances at Harvard 100 years before. 
So, you know, it's not just a place that frowns on uh, offbeat research. But when it came to aliens and alien abduction and John Mack's um, propensity for for passionate uh, enthusiasm, uh, that didn't sit terribly well with, with some of his colleagues because he, he was a very charismatic guy and um, he was very confident and he was not ashamed to uh, announce his research at Harvard even before he had really checked it out. I mean, as soon as he heard about abduction from Bud Hopkins and as soon as he interviewed his first uh, experiencers, uh, he already was, you know, lecturing about it to colleagues and... Uh, so uh, that was his frame of mind. So somebody who's so enthusiastic and, you know, bubbling with intensity uh, is not always a great fit in, in academia. Um, so uh, Harvard did appoint a committee to investigate him. I call it an inquisition uh, because it's a word that, uh, that the committee used in telling John they were going to look into him. And they said it was not going to be an inquisition. <laughs> Well, you can't tell a psychiatrist <laughs> this is not uh, what this is. <laughs> use that word, because he was immediately thinking, "Well, why did they use that word?" And uh, and I in the book I basically treated like an inquisition because they inquired. It was secret. It was not supposed to be public uh, for various reasons of you know uh, personnel policy. Um, but they inquired into his personal beliefs, into his finances. They delved into a lot of things that, um, while insisting it was not questioning his, uh, his, his academic freedom, um, but only his methodologies. Uh, but it was very intrusive. It cost him a lot of money. Uh, he eventually had two phenomenal lawyers, uh, Danny Sheehan, who had investigated uh, the, the Iran-Contra scandal of the Reagan administration, and Karen Silkwood, you know, plutonium poisoning case, and the Ku Klux Klan, and um, Eric McLeish, who had um, exposed the priest abuse scandal in Boston. These were his two lawyers. He had wonderful lawyers who really held Harvard's feet to the fire. Uh, but the damage was done to him in many ways. Psychologically, he was very beaten down, uh, anxious, uh, uh, and financially, it was a disaster. So um, uh, in the end, they found nothing wrong. I mean, that they, they, they thought he was a little too enthusiastic. He admitted, yeah, I was. Um, but there was no disciplinary action taken. And no report was ever issued, by the way. Uh, I pieced the story of the Inquisition together for my book, from uh, his own files, legal memos, uh, emails, interviews with both lawyers. So um, Harvard to this day has never really given a full account of, uh, uh, of, of that whole very sad episode. Mm. So in, in all of the research that you, that you did on uh, John Mack and, and just the topic in general, uh, in your opinion, what, what was... You know what were maybe the the most remarkable, uh, credible cases in your in your opinion or, or or stories? Well, you know, one is more amazing than the next when you go into these stories. And I interviewed quite a number of his experiences uh, as well, because you know when I got access um, to his uh, to his archives through his family, uh, by the way, without any preconditions, they did not demand to see what I had written. Uh, they were very 
really very good about it. Um, and I wouldn't have agreed to, uh, you know, run anything by them in advance. Anyway, um, when I, uh, uh, got access to his material, I did not have access to his clinical sessions because those are covered by medical confidentiality. Um, but a number of those people uh, that he, um, c counseled, uh, came, came out publicly later, became, you know, uh, uh, out, of, out of the closet, however you want to call it, and I've interviewed them, um, and uh, he, he appeared with them on, on uh, TV shows, including Oprah. Um, so uh, I also had access to, uh, to them and their stories, and I've got to tell you that these stories are amazing, and... Um, uh, and one story is almost, you think you heard it all, you know, somebody who's abducted and then goes into a spacecraft and, you know, eggs are taken from a woman and then she's re-abducted and visits her hybrid child. I mean, these are stories that people tell you say, wow, that's, that's the most amazing story. And then you hear another story and it's even more amazing. So one story that Bud Hopkins investigated and wrote a whole book about called Witnessed. Um, is about a woman uh, who was seen uh, flying out of her 11-story window over the Brooklyn Bridge uh, and into a, a spacecraft that then flew away with three beings and plunged into the East River. Um, and um, the trouble is, and when, when Bud Hopkins told John Mack the story, and John Mack, who had heard a lot of great stories, was blown away by this one, as was I when I read about it, um, and I interviewed the woman later, um, who's around. Um, the problem is that the first two people who reported this case, who, su who supposedly were policemen uh, who were escorting a VIP to a meeting on the, on the FDR Drive on the East River, who, who saw this happening, um, and communicated with Bud Hopkins, brought it to his attention. He never could find out who these people really were. He had letters from them, he had emails, he had audio tapes, um, but he could never find them. Well, that's a big hole in the story. Uh, he found the woman, um, and uh, she is, uh, her real name is Linda Napolitano. She gave a, a pseudonym when she first you know, came forward. Um, anyway, it's a, it's a huge story. Uh, uh, the um, VIP was later identified, supposedly, as Javier Perez de Cuellar, the Secretary General of the United Nations at the time, who was supposedly, according to the story, abducted at the same time she was, uh, because there were gaps in, in the story. Um, he never fully addressed um you know, the, the, the stories, he was given an opportunity, he was approached, including by uh, people uh, I was in contact with, um, never gave a satisfactory account of, you know, he didn't say, oh, that's completely crazy, of course there's nothing to it. It, it wasn't that simple. So that's an interesting story that came up. Um, uh, and there were many like that. I mean, one story, as I said, is wilder than the next. That's incredible. Uh, before, before we let you go, because um, I know we're running short on time here, 
we are coming up to the uh, the deadline where um, it, it, I thought it was an interesting way to to uh, um, kind of push disclosure along by by adding uh, some language into a, a, the COVID bill. Uh, but that's that's what happened. Uh, there are some senators who are as anxious as the rest of us to find out what what do we really know. And so this deadline is approaching in, in June for the government to release what they have on, on the topic. Um, I've, I've seen, I've seen attempts to get information before and it, it generally results in some, some, uh, declassified documents that are mostly, uh, black Sharpie. So, um, what, what in your, uh, what in your opinion, or, or maybe, you know, what you've heard, uh, from folks on the inside, you know, are we anticipating seeing anything monumental here or is this just going to be a typical thing where they release some stuff? It's nothing we don't already know. And half of it's, you know, blacked out. Well, I think there's uh, a good likelihood of that. First of all, uh, the deadline, which is supposed to be six months, 180 days after the defense authorization act, uh, which passed in December, um, is not a hard and fast deadline. Uh, according to the people we've talked to, uh, they're going to try to get the report out. June would be six months, 180 days, but um, it's already uh, problematical in terms of getting the information together. The, it's the information of, um, um, that the Pentagon has collected in bits and pieces is in squirreled away in you know different offices. Uh, it's on a you know very closely held. So the task force um, is having a very difficult time. Accessing all this information, it may the deadline may well slip, which it can do in Washington. All they have to say is that we're not quite ready; we need more time. Uh, or uh, they could issue some kind of an interim report, which will scratch the surface um, and leave a lot of the uh, confidential stuff to the um, uh, congressional committees, uh, which is also, I, I think, a good likelihood that uh, there, there will be a. a classified portion that will not be available to the public. Um, I think your instinct is right that what they'll um, reveal is a lot of stuff that's pretty much known already about these encounters. We put out three videos with our New York Times stories um, that we got access to that showed um, encounters, you know, radar um, records and gun camera records, thermal imaging devices that showed these encounters, including one very interesting object like a spinning top, like a gyroscope, uh, another skimming over the water. So these videos are out there. Um, but I would not hold out tremendous hope that the government is going to do what, you know, some people are calling disclosure, you know, telling everything. First of all, there's some defense aspects to this. We don't want everyone at our earthly adversaries to know how much we know about the capabilities of these objects, which are amazing. Um, so some stuff will be withheld for sure. So um, I'm taking a very cautious you know, approach to uh, my expectations. Uh, I don't think, um, uh, you know, a lot of stuff will be uh, put out uh, that there'll be of tremendous interest initially, um, you know, we'll have to see. But I, I think there's reasons to, to be skeptical. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's unfortunate, but hey, this is, um, you know, with, with folks like you, uh, you know, helping kind of push this thing along, uh, the, the progress that has been made, I think, in the last year is is remarkable and something that I thought I'd never see in my lifetime. And it's certainly legitimized uh, a field of research that up until now, you know, typically elicited giggles and kind of, you know, joking responses. And now this is something that people are taking very seriously. And uh, I think the entire uh, kind of feel around the subject has, has changed. So I appreciate the work that you've done. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, you know, keep, keep it up. And, uh, before I let you go, where can people go, uh, to stay up on top of the work that you're doing and also, uh, get a copy of the new book. Oh, thank you. Yeah. The, the book is available uh, everywhere. Uh, I love to give a plug to independent bookstores because they're struggling. Uh, if they don't have it in stock, they're happy to get it. Uh, it's published by the uh, high road books of the university of New Mexico press. Uh, they're in their second printing now. They ran out because of a run on the book, but there are plenty of copies now. Uh, Amazon has it. Uh, Kindle has it, so you can read it instantly. Get it on your Kindle if you want to not wait for the hard copy to arrive. Uh, there will be an audio version at some point. I think that my publisher has made a contract with uh, an audio book company, so people will be able to listen to it in their you know, vehicles. Um, so I mean, it's easy to get. Uh, it's everywhere. The Believer, and um, uh, it's it's doing very well from all the accounts I see. So uh, I really appreciate all the people who are buying it and talking about it. And people like you who are spreading the word and talking about it is is a great help. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, huge honor to have you on. So I appreciate it and uh, love your work. So uh, thank, thank you. Thank so you. Much. Real pleasure. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to From the Void podcast. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you have a second, consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. To stay up to date, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at From the Void Podcast. I'll be back next week with a brand new mystery. If you enjoyed this episode, I will cover this topic in more detail uh, later on this season, but I'll also cover a whole host of other strange and unexplained mysteries. Until next time, this has been From the Void, and I've been your host, John Williamson.